Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The first time I met John Ford, I was sent to Monument Valley for Esquire to do a piece about him. And uh, somehow I ended up standing right next to him when a rider came riding down the hill and jumped off the horse before the horse stopped, landed on his feet, and handed Richard Widmark a message. And Ford turned to me and he said, for some reason, he said, how about that? Now, I was 23 or 24, and I didn't know what the hell to say to that. I was scared shitless of him. So I, I just said, that looked pretty difficult. He looked so disgusted with me. He turned away and then he turned back and said, yeah, I'd say it was difficult. I'd say it was very difficult. Oh, I thought, Shit, I'm not going to go anywhere near him for a while. This is Peter Bogdanovich telling the story of how he first met the director, John Ford, while he was filming Shy and Autumn, which would be one of the final films of Ford's vast and vital career. He's not easy to talk to. On purpose. On purpose. Right. Uh, oh, yeah, no, he was a saboteur, yeah. <laughs> That's Ken Burns, legendary documentarian of American history. Ken has worked on more than 30 documentary projects. Nowadays, it seems like every documentary gets a multi-episodic treatment. But Ken has been doing it since 1990 with a series on the Civil War. He's built a reputation for tackling huge topics. Now, back to Peter's story. John Ford had just scolded him for his reaction to his stunt. So I hid somewhere. And about 20 minutes, half an hour, he's doing another stunt shot. He likes it, he prints that. Then I'm standing about as far away from him as I could be. And he yells out, Bogdanovich! Like that. And I say, oh, shit. So I come running over to him. And I say, yes, Mr. Ford. He says, did that look difficult to you? <laughs> yes, Mr. Ford. Just wanted to make sure it looked difficult. John Ford is one of the most legendary directors in Hollywood history. He won seven Academy Awards and directed more than 140 films between 1913 and 1965. Ford's career began in the silent era, but he's best known for his westerns with John Wayne. It was on the set of his final western where he and Peter had that rocky introduction. John Ford was an intimidating presence, accentuated by his signature eye patch. But Peter won him over eventually, and they became friends. But even then, getting an answer from John Ford was no easy stunt. Can I ask you what particular element about the Western appealed to you? I wouldn't know. Would you agree that the point of... The films of John Ford are a study in Americana. The same could be said about the documentaries of Ken Burns. My name is Louise Stratton, and this is One Handshake Away, from John Ford to Ken Burns. On today's show, we have Ken Burns. He's a multi-award-winning documentary filmmaker who's created a number of very notable films. I think he's our greatest documentary filmmaker. The Civil War in 1990 was extraordinary. The Vietnam War in 2017 was amazing. And his documentary about Muhammad Ali is 
breathtakingly brilliant. Ken and Louise and I will be discussing John Ford. In many ways, my film education as a young boy started with Ford. He was the dominant director of the time. It was the person my father loved the most. And so because my father loved him the most, uh, I did. My dad was a cultural anthropologist. My mother was very sick and dying over many years with cancer. And after she died, he let me stay up at night on TV for old movies or out to the Cinema Guild at the University of Michigan or other places. So I was getting a great education in silent films. I particularly liked Keaton, not over Chaplin, but I liked Keaton a lot. And I liked a lot of film noir, which was still considered rather B-movie-ish. I was steeped in an incredibly valuable education, particularly in American film, but not limited to American film. I also was being inculcated by my dad into the French New Wave, which then led me as a teenager to Italian neorealism, Rossellini, and then later on Antonioni and Visconti. Also, Kurosawa was always there. Less, I'm still not very well versed on Ozu. So I had a big, huge sense of world cinema. I remember watching Odd Man Out with my father about the Irish Troubles, starring James Mason, directed by Carol Reed. And for the very first time, I saw my father cry. There's one of the pillars of my life, the only remaining pillar of my life, in tears, something he has never done before. He's been angry, he's yelled, he's been happy, he's been funny, he's been silly, but he's never cried. And at that moment, I went, oh, that's what the movies do. That's what they do. They give you a kind of cathartic, emotional connection. And I decided right then and there at age 12 that I would be a filmmaker. And I'm an American, and that that meant I would go to Hollywood and I would be the next John Ford. Had you intended to be a fiction filmmaker? Yes, yeah. I I assumed that's what it meant, Peter. It meant Hollywood. Yeah. It meant going there, and there were great models. But I think what happened, and I was very fortunate, I went to Hampshire College in the late summer of 1971. It was a new experimental school. It had been open just a year And all of my teachers were social documentary, still photographers and filmmakers who reminded me that there is as much drama in what is and what was as anything the human imagination makes up. And so all of a sudden I was pursuing that desire to be the very best filmmaker that I could, but in a realm in which I was tied wonderfully to the facts. And somewhere along the line, this coincided with this latent interest in American history. Not latent, just it just... I didn't think that I would ever have anything to do with history. And of course, that's all I've ever done. After graduating college, Ken Burns started a production company. Five years later, in 1981, he released his first feature-length documentary about the Brooklyn Bridge. It earned him an Oscar nomination. Ken's directorial style was informed by an upbringing with a rich exposure to film. I think there were four men that really dominated my attention, and Orson Welles and Alfred Hitchcock were obvious. Orson Welles had towering genius, which I don't need to tell you. Hitchcock had his own celebrity and a kind of way of advertising himself. There was Howard Hawks, who was the least well-known of them and the most interested in a kind of professionalism among his, his stories and, the, and his characters. And then there was John Ford, who was this kind of epic engager with American history, or maybe not American history as much as American mythology. And I was drawn to that. 
He is a master of human interaction. He is a master of emotion. He is a master of storytelling, of pacing. And I always vowed that I would be an emotional filmmaker. And I describe myself as an emotional archaeologist. I am not interested in merely excavating the dry dates and facts and events of the past, as Ford was not either. But I'm interested in the higher emotions, not nostalgia or sentimentality. What I've tried to do is say, applying the same laws of storytelling that operated on John Ford and Orson Welles and Alfred Hitchcock and Howard Hawks, apply to me. I just can't make shit up, and they can. And that's to their credit, and they do a great job of it. They're the experts at it. But my work has been to try to sort of work the fields of the same places that that John Ford spent a good deal of time, but to do it in a way that's factual and complicating. I know I went to see the man who shot Liberty Valance with my dad as a young boy. I would have been nine. And it was a complicated movie for me. It was, I don't want to say disturbing. I just don't think I fully understood it. I've seen it many times since then. Thank you, Jason. On time. You bet. In The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, Jimmy Stewart plays Rant's daughter, a U.S. senator who returns to his hometown for the funeral of an old friend named Tom Donovan, played by John Wayne. Upon arriving, Rance is questioned by a reporter. Sir, I don't wish to intrude, but a United States senator is news. I've got a responsibility to know why you came all the way down here to bury a man. You can't just say his name was Tom Donovan and leave it at that. Decades earlier, Rance found himself face-to-face with Liberty Valance, an outlaw who terrorized his hometown. This time, right between the eyes. In a classic Old West shootout, Rance manages to kill Valance, becoming a hero in an instant. I nominate to the Congress at Washington, Ransom Stoddard! But amidst the cheering, Rance finds himself overwhelmed with guilt and confides in Tom. What is it now, Pilgrim? Your conscience? Isn't it enough to kill a man without trying to build a life on it? You talk too much. Think too much. Besides, you didn't kill Liberty Valance. Rance's shot had actually missed. Tom, hidden in the shadows, had saved Rance and fired the fatal blow. It was a secret that launched Rance's career. Years later, Rance comes home to pay his respects to Tom, who died alone and in poverty. But at the end, the young reporter, when he finds out that things aren't the way everyone thought it had turned out and why uh, the Jimmy Stewart character had been propelled to the high lofty position of senator that that he was, The young reporter tears up his notes and basically says, in essence, that the mythology, the existing story, is more important than the truth. You're not going to use the story, Mr. Scott? No, sir. This is the West, sir. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. He's right, Rand. Peter asked Ford about this idea in one of their conversations. Ford's response provides what is possibly one of the best insights into his philosophy as a filmmaker. The 
that line in, in Liberty Valance when the, when the guy says, when it's a choice between the fact and the legend, print the legend. Do you agree with that? Oh, yes. Why? Because, no, I think it's good for the country. I mean, we've got a lot of people around here posing, you know, supposed to be great heroes. I know goddamn well they weren't, you know, and it's good for the country to have heroes to build up. In Ford's work, the mythology of it is both the strength and the weakness, and that's true of everybody. You know, we have met the enemy and he is us. And so Ford's strengths are his weaknesses inherently. And I think it must be true of all of us. Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts. The team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Monument Valley. John Ford has shot nine movies here. It's become so identified with him, other directors are convinced that using it as a location would be plagiarism. This is a clip from Directed by John Ford, the first documentary Peter ever directed. John Ford shot nearly all of his westerns in Monument Valley. That's where he was filming when Peter first met him. Monument Valley is visually stunning, full of massive orange sandstone buttes on the Utah-Arizona state line. If you close your eyes and picture a Western film in your head, you're probably seeing Monument Valley. If you get American history from John Ford, you think that Tombstone, Arizona is in Monument Valley, which is in Southern Utah. (laughs) You think that things that happen in Kansas are in Monument Valley, which is in Southeastern Utah. You think that all the Westerns take place within the shadow of those extraordinary monoliths of Monument Valley. In reality, almost all the stories Ford told actually took place in radically different environments. But like Ford says, when choosing between fact or legend, choose the legend. There's another legendary sequence that Ford shot long before his first Monument Valley scene. Three Bad Men, Ford's 1926 silent film, covers the South Dakota land rush and features a scene where hundreds of settlers wait on horseback and in wagons for a cannon to fire, signaling the land is free to claim. At noon, when the cannon fires, a rush of people flood into the empty landscape. Watching the scene today, knowing it was made without CGI, it's an achievement of stunning scale. When Peter interviewed Ford for his documentary, in Monument Valley, of course, he asked about this sequence, and Ford answered in his characteristic style. You made a picture called Three Bad Men, which was a large-scale Western. You had a quite elaborate land rush in it. Mm-hmm. How did you shoot that? With a camera. <laughs> anyway, as you can see, man of few words, but his movies do all the talking. Ken, which of Ford's films do you think influenced you the most? The list is pretty long, I think, Peter. The Informer. I like The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Obviously, The Searchers, The Grapes of Wrath. I like How Green Was My Valley. Oh, I I love that film. 
My parents saw it when they got to America. They arrived in 39, and that the film came out, I think, in 40. And they all mentioned it so many times to me when I was growing up, How Green Was My Valley, How Green Was My Valley, great film. When I finally saw it, Jesus Christ. How Green Was My Valley is a 1941 film directed by John Ford, based on a novel of the same name. It tells the story of the Morgan family in a Welsh mining town. It highlights how rapid social changes and the harsh conditions of mine labor make life hard and dangerous. Like the informer, it's just suffused with emotion and feeling, and, and I don't think it ever steps over into some treacly business. I think it's just emotion. It's so welcome. I mean, it's, it's what, we're, what we want. Orson Welles said to me that he, liked, he loved Ford. He loved Ford a lot, obviously, his movies. But he said he, he didn't like Ford when Ford was trying to make him cry. But I think How Green Was My Valley make a stone cry. Yeah. That's, that's funny. That seems so harsh for yeah. Wells to say. I mean, Wells was not into having people weep in their films. No. And emotion is the principal currency of Ford's films. You're meant to feel. And you're meant to have these conflicted and sometimes emotional reactions to it. That's Ford's whole purpose there, you know, and, and it's definitely not Wells's. I always felt that The Grapes of Wrath, seen in context when it was made, was about the darkest film ever made by an American studio. Indeed, it is unbelievable. And I think a lot of the criticism that attends to it is all retrospective, retroactive criticism. And a lot of it has to do with just the kind of heroic and mythological dismount that I think just the codes of the time required him to do. But it's pretty tough. It's pretty tough. The Grapes of Wrath, Ford's 1940 adaptation of John Steinbeck's classic American novel, is shockingly dark particularly because of the context it was produced in. By the 1930s, film studios came under serious threat of government censorship, following a series of scandals which gave the impression that the industry was morally questionable as a whole. In an effort to preempt this, major studios created the Motion Picture Production Codes, more commonly known as the Hayes Codes, which established a sort of moral guideline for stories. For instance, under the Hayes Codes, stories cannot make the bad guys sympathetic, and traditional family values must always be represented. The Hayes Codes posed a challenge for the Grapes of Wrath. It's a story of poverty in the Depression-era Dust Bowl. Tom Joad and his family, kicked off their land, travel to California in a futile search for opportunity. Along the way, a friend of Tom's is killed while on strike, and in turn, Tom kills the attacker. Tom must leave his family in order to protect them. When Tom, played by Henry Fonda, says goodbye to his mother, he tells her that he'll fight for justice as an outlaw. Well, as long as I'm an outlaw anyways, maybe I can do something. Wherever there's a fight so hungry people can eat, I'll be there. Wherever there's a cop beating up a guy, I'll be there. Peter talked to Henry Fonda about John Ford's direction while filming that final monologue. I asked Fonda, how did he shoot that? He said, well, he told us he didn't want to see it. We wanted to rehearse it with him, and he said he didn't want to see it. He said we could rehearse it alone, but he didn't want to see it. I said, why do you think? I said, I don't know. He said maybe he wanted it to have an impact on him 
for the first time or whatever. I said, did that help you? He said, yeah, because we really worked hard to make it work, and it did. Ford's directorial style was very modern. He was one of the first directors to encourage actors and writers to create a backstory for their characters, and often felt that the first take of an emotional scene was the most authentic, as we heard from Henry Fonda about his monologue at the end of The Grapes of Wrath. Ford consistently pushed to make his films more emotionally salient. Perhaps this started during the silent era, when Ford adopted the practice of playing music while filming to help set the tone for the scene. Did you ever do the old thing that they say they used to do with play, you know, having music played off screen? Oh, yeah. We all, I still have the same guy, Danny Bezeghi. Yeah. He started on oh, the that's iron, right, of course. On the Iron Horse, he's been with me ever since. Yeah. It sounds fatuous now, but it, it really helped. Yeah. That's so wonderful. You know, we don't have scenes where we're, we've got actors shooting. You know, we put them in a booth and and they're reading off camera, you know, first-person stuff. And we're actually tamping down the tendency to be over-dramatized. But when I was making my jazz film, one of my session musicians, fiddle player, not a violin player, came to me and said, I got to talk about Louis Armstrong. He said, just listen. And he takes a record and he puts it on the, the needle and he plays it and he starts talking while Louis Armstrong is playing. And I went, stop, sing no more, called the cinematographer, and we played the record while he was talking over it. And it was mind-blowing. This is that scene. I'm just very happy to be on Earth when there is Louis Armstrong. People try to imagine what it was like to be on Earth before Mozart. Mozart's music is so important to us. Try to imagine what it was like to be on Earth before Louis Armstrong. It has meant so much to so many people, his music. It is, he makes people happy. That's the only other time that I've actually consciously played music while I was filming somebody. Well, they did it quite often in silent pictures. They had Yeah, it's so important. I get it. Of course you want to do it. You want to put in the mood. You want to make somebody cry. You want to get the blood flowing. Ford's approach was unique for the time, but perhaps what makes him stand out most of all is the scope of his work and his staying power in a massively changing industry. Around the same time that the Hayes Codes were introduced, Hollywood entered the studio system era, where studios had almost total control over the production and distribution of a movie. It created a very restrictive environment for directors like John Ford. So, you know, those days you did, you know, hand you a script and, you know, Saturday night and you read it Sunday and then Monday you started, you know. In those days they had the cast all laid out for you. You didn't know who the hell, you know, you didn't know who the hell was in it. On occasion you'd slip your own people in and they'd steal the picture like Jay Farrell and McDonald. Mm. Yeah. It breaks my heart to hear that in a way, because yeah. a man of his extraordinary talents having to swim upstream so often or more often than not be handed something on Saturday night to read on Sunday to start shooting on Monday. And the fact that you could still put your fingerprint on it and could see that it's so very different from Preston Sturgis or so very different from Michael Curtis or so very different from Howard Hawks or whomever you're thinking about that's operating at another studio or just down the lot. Ford started his career making silent films at Universal 
many of which have been lost to time. But in 1920, he moved to Fox, right around the time the studio system came into full force. He would go on to spend nearly 30 years at Fox. I asked Ford if he was upset or unhappy with a lot of the pictures he made at Fox, because he never really became a company man. That is trouble being under contract. You had to do it and getting paid big money and there was no income tax, you know, very little. And so, swallowed your pride, went out and did them. I think one of the interesting things about your whole career is that, I mean, in, in many instances you've stayed and, you know, and you've stayed in Hollywood and you've made pictures and you've made more pictures than many directors and you fought the system in many in many yeah. instances, but you never became a what well, you know a company man. Yeah, I argued and fought. That's why I got the reputation of being a tough guy, which I'm not. I'll be tough with executive producer and be rude to them and fight with them, but uh, over ahead of a studio, but never with my people. You know, I think they all love me. I have to fight like hell, but I always lost with that goddamn contract. Well, then finally, you, when you got off the contract, you, at RKO, weren't you a little, had a little more freedom when you were at RKO? Oh, yeah, much more. At the end there, Peter asked Ford about RKO. After 30 years at Fox, Ford turned down a lucrative contract renewal to become an independent director-producer, forming Argosy Pictures, through which he had much more creative independence. One of his first projects was The Fugitive, a relatively abstract art film set in a land where Christianity is outlawed. Henry Fonda plays the unnamed final surviving priest, a fugitive. The film was a box office flop. Nonetheless, Ford would later say it was his best picture. You've often said that The Fugitive is one of your favorite pictures. Why do you feel that way? came out the way I wanted to come out. It wasn't popular because... The comic critics got at it, you know, and uh, evidently had no appeal to the public. But to me, it was, you know, I mean, I mean, I was very proud of my work. He was proud of The Fugitive because he got to make the film he wanted to make. You know what? It reminds me that part of my own feelings about becoming a documentary filmmaker and ultimately allying myself from the very, very beginning with public broadcasting is that kind of story. I'd read it a gazillion times. Not just Ford, who had a kind of independence that most directors don't enjoy. Still, you hear that rueful regret in this stuff. They call it the industry. Their stationery has silhouettes of palm trees, not smokestacks, but they call it the industry. And that ought to be a warning to the folks who need to have creative control of everything, as I do in my own work. And I'm very happy to say that I've sat around with people who complained that I wasn't allowed to use this actor or I couldn't use this music or this, we couldn't do this scene, it was too expensive or, or something like that. And obviously what I do on a documentary scale is a fraction of the amount of money and whatever, but I've been able every single film to put out a director's cut. So another way of putting that more accurately is that if you don't like a film, it's all my fault. And you don't have that kind of the suit that, that ruined it for you or made it difficult or constrained a particular artistic vision. You've got only yourself. And I think most people have wanted that. 
And there are obviously, you included directors who've had that, but it's not without your battles. And I can just say, I, I just haven't had battles. I've had battles with myself, which is the only battle you should be having. So what I used to do sometimes is I'd come over to his house and sit in his bedroom. When he wasn't shooting, he was usually in bed watching television, usually a Western. So I was sitting next to him one day, and I, I was desperately trying to make conversation. Peter's telling a story about spending time at home with John Ford. So he was in bed, chewing on a handkerchief. And um, I was sitting next to him, trying to think of something to say. So I said, you know, it's, it's Duke's birthday next week. I thought I'd give him a present. I thought I'd give him a book. And Duke is John Wayne. So he said, huh? I said, it's Duke's birthday next week. I thought I'd give him a present. I thought I'd give him a book. Huh? Oh, I knew I was in trouble. Because when he wants to really humiliate you, he makes you say the same thing over and over again until you're practically yelling. And, you know, there's no sentence in any language that you can repeat 10 times at ever-increasing volume. It doesn't sound ridiculous. So I said, it's Duke's birthday next week. I thought I'd give him a present. I thought I'd give him a book. Huh? It's Duke's birthday next week. I thought I'd give him a present. I thought I'd give him a book. After that, he turns and he says, he's got a book. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I must say I broke up. Marion Robert Morrison, a.k.a. John Wayne, is an icon of 20th century cinema, but his success was no sure thing. Wayne's acting career sputtered out of the gate, landing mostly bit parts and B-movies for almost a decade. His big break came in 1939 when he was cast as the lead in John Ford's Western, Stagecoach. The film was a huge success and propelled John Wayne to icon status. From that point forward, Wayne became a mainstay in Ford's stable of performers. That's another thing I like about Ford is that he's got a touring company. Yeah. You can see John Ford over and over again. You can see Jimmy Stewart. You can see Henry Fonda over and over again. Maureen O'Hara. You know, let's talk about all those great character actors. Andy Devine, people who show up again and again in his films. And they're hugely important. And he's not disturbed by that. And just as I use the same narrators, same first-person voices reading accurate historical quotes. And you've got some great ones to say that, right? They're great, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and I'm so yeah. humbled and grateful that the Meryl Streeps of the world and the Tom Hanks are willing for nothing, SAG minimum, to come in and work for a few hours in a studio for us to make a film come alive. Ken Burns routinely recruits blockbuster Hollywood talent for his documentaries. His first documentary series on the Civil War featured Morgan Freeman as the voice of Frederick Douglass. Tom Hanks has played a number of roles in Ken's projects. Tom once, in our film on World War II called The War, we'd given him to read a lot of stuff by this newspaper editor in Minnesota. This guy, Al McIntosh, he became the Greek chorus of the entire 15 hours. He's, he's the first quote you hear after the introduction. He's the last quote you hear in the film. If you wanted to be in a safe place in World War I, southwestern Minnesota is not a bad place. And yet, he saw the toll it took on its families. He saw young men go off and disappear. He saw young men come back utterly changed and families devastated and war efforts. And so he had a kind of ringside seat and Tom wanted to do more of it. He loved it so much, he wrote me a letter and he said, look, I'm dreaming of Al McIntosh. I bless him and that contribution. He didn't have to do that. 
After Stagecoach, John Ford and John Wayne only made one more film together before the U.S. entered World War II. Ford was a reserve for the Navy and was drawn into the fray. He was assigned to be the head of the photographic unit for the Office of Strategic Services, the precursor to the CIA. They knew from detailed maps they carried with them the exact location of vital airfields, hangars, and other structures. Each was given a specific objective, and straight toward that objective he came. Over the war years, Ford would create both public and classified films about the war effort, even winning two Academy Awards for his films on the Battle of Midway and the attack on Pearl Harbor. When you made these war documentaries that you made, were you influenced by any of these films that Ford made? I saw them in school, and I would have to say no, because they have their own kind of directorial ethos in a period. Documentaries are, are so wide open right now, and the range, there's, documentary is a horrible word to contain the whole range of the spectrum of the kinds of things. And they've liberated Hollywood, too, from some of the plot conventions that imprison so many films. I remember after I made The Civil War, it came out in 1990, I just said, I can't do this again. When Confederate or Union soldiers saw combat for the first time, they said they'd seen the elephant. And I guess it was the most exotic thing you could think of. Nobody saw an elephant. So seeing the elephant was seeing this horrific thing that, that human beings do to one another, which is combat and war. It's just, it's the worst manifestation of us. And so I've, I vowed not to do it again. I just didn't want to, you know, it was one generation removed, but I didn't want to look at those horrible pictures. And then I heard that a thousand veterans of the second, it was the late 90s, thousand veterans of the Second World War were dying each day in America. And that number's way less than that because of the actuarial realities. And that 40% or something like that, an outrageous percentage of graduating high school seniors thought we fought with the Germans against the Russians in the Second World War. And then I went, oh my God, I have to do World War II. And I, then I realized I could never say I'm not going to do a war. So before the ink was dry on the World War II, I decided to do Vietnam. And 10 and a half years later, before the ink was dry on Vietnam, I was already committed to doing, as I'm working on now, among other projects, a history of the American Revolution. Because war brings out the very worst, but also sometimes the very best. And I don't mean just in, in the conventional notions of courage. As you know, in the Vietnam series, Peter, we talked about that. There's as much courage in saying, no, I'm not going. Oh, yeah, of course. Tim O'Brien, who wrote the best book out of Vietnam, The Things They Carried, is still torturing himself for having gone. At all, yeah. wow. Because he didn't have the courage to disappoint his parents and his girlfriend and all the people in southwestern Minnesota, not far from the little town where Al McIntosh was the editor of a newspaper and writing the dispatches that Tom Hanks wanted in another war. Tim O'Brien was drafted into the Vietnam War, a war he strongly opposed. In Ken's series, Tim recounts the agonizing decision between giving in and going to war or fleeing to Canada. I think it was pretty simple and stupid. It was a fear of, of embarrassment, a fear of ridicule and humiliation, the things they'd say about me. What a coward and what a sissy for going to Canada. 
I couldn't summon the courage to say no to those nameless, faceless people. And the nightmare of Vietnam for me is not the bombs and the bullets. It's that failure of, of nerve that I so regret. The thing that, that Tim O'Brien is carrying is, is just that, that the accumulated guilt of the lack of the courage to say, no, this war is wrong, I know it's wrong, and I'm not going. You know, what Muhammad Ali did, one of the most divisive figures in the 1960s, but he does die the most beloved and the most known person on the planet. So maybe the divisiveness was us. Ken's recent project on Muhammad Ali is a thorough exploration of the American identity. Right as the Vietnam War was raging, the nation was confronting its racist past and present. Muhammad Ali was at the center of that. You meet Muhammad Ali, and this is a guy who said, I'm not going to go fight. The Viet Cong never did nothing against me. He's making a religious decision. It's based on his faith as a Muslim. But you know, America in the 60s, America anytime is going to let a black man say that. It's like giving the country the middle finger, so we're going to throw the book at him. And so who's divisive there? The Jehovah's Witnesses had already been granted conscientious objector status because of their beliefs. He held sincere beliefs. He knew he'd get a cushy job. You know, he'd do camp shows and he'd visit for morale and stuff like that. He'd fake punch people so they could take a picture of him at various bases and stuff like that. But he said, no, I I go before machine gun fire today rather than go against my faith, is what he said. He's 22 years old, 23 years old. He was great. Amazing. And you know what? When the Supreme Court on a technicality released him from his conviction five years in jail, which had kept him from fighting, he was imprisoned anyway, he could have been gloating, could have recited a poem, could have done something. And it was a spectacular moment because he gets to be Muhammad Ali there. He gets to dance up and down and do a little joke and a rhyme about the Supremes. And he goes, no, he's somebody who represented. Ken's series on Muhammad Ali includes a clip from the interview he gave right after learning about the court's decision. How do you feel about our system now? Well, I don't know who will be assassinated tonight. I don't know who will be enslaved or mistreated. I don't know who will be deprived of some other justice or equality. So I can't say nothing. All I can talk about is my case. And I'm thankful that the courts recognized my sincerity and my beliefs in this case. And so instead of gloating in his unanimous Supreme Court technicality decision, he just looked at the whole back 350 years of black people's treatment on this continent, back to Emmett Till, you know, who was his age when he was brutally tortured and murdered, and his mama had the courage to leave the casket open to show people tortured, mutilated bodies and galvanize the modern civil rights movement. And then looking ahead to the Trayvon Martins and the Breonna Taylors from Louisville, Kentucky, Muhammad Ali's hometown, and uh, George Floyd, and the thousands of other names. He wanted to be free, but he wasn't going to go without being able to bring along everybody else. Ken says Muhammad Ali epitomized a self-conflicted country during the Vietnam era. Although Ford's career was mostly over by then, his filmography, especially his westerns, dealt with an equally self-conflicted and dark part of our nation's history. At one point, I, I can't remember what we were talking about. I think we were talking about, obviously talking about the Indian situation. And Ford said, it's a blot on our escutcheon. It's a blot on our shield. And it is. 
It's one of the many blots. And I think that unfortunately, though, we have played into and he is part of the mythology of America, the exceptionalism of America. D.W. Griffith is the most egregious practitioner of that. His idea of the heroes of the one of the great films ever made in filmmaking terms, uh, Birth of a Nation, are our own homegrown Al-Qaeda or ISIS or the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Woodrow Wilson, the most overrated of any president because he resegregated the civil service and said of this film, supposedly, that it was history written with lightning. And in fact, all it did is help perpetuate a new surge in the Ku Klux Klan. So those pictures of the thousands of Klansmen walking with giant flags and on the steps of the Capitol are all part of the problem we're dealing with today yeah. as people with Confederate flags run up the steps of the Capitol. Um, that's very well put. And that is the problem with Ford. I just got chills. That's the problem with Griffith. We think these are things that bubble up to the surface every now and then. No, they're present. And that's why we've been in the kind of political trouble we're in now. We perceive on a daily basis the fragility. And you really have to look back and wonder who adds to it, who contributes to it, who helps perpetuate that, those images and those things. I think Ken is getting at a very complicated topic here. Can you separate the art from the artist? And what is the true cultural impact of cinema? Ford's work helped to create an American identity in cinema. So what does it mean that Native Americans were almost always the enemy? What is the impact of using terms that today we would consider a slur? Here, Ken recalls the story that Peter told at the beginning of our conversation. When you were talking, you were probably overlooking Monument Valley, as I've been many, many times, and you're trying to get the attention or not get the attention of this great director, John Ford, and he's shooting Cheyenne Autumn, in which he is trying to understand the blot on our escutcheon. Mm. He's trying to understand the horrific trail of tears of the Cherokee people. Cheyenne Autumn is a key point in Ford's career. Most of his earlier Westerns cast Native Americans as the villain, but Cheyenne Autumn focused on the plight of the Cheyenne Nation. Ford described this film as an elegy for Native Americans abused by the U.S. When Peter and Ford discussed the film, Ford spoke about his fondness and respect for Native Americans. Oh, well, I always try to give the Indians some dignity. These are very dignified people. I like them. Oh, I don't know, that might be natural impulse or something uh, in a conscience, but I always like to give them dignity, even when they're being defeated. Yeah. Well, you did it in Fort Apache, too, of course. Well, of course, it's not very popular in the United States. You know, they, the audiences like to see Indians get killed and massacred, and they don't consider the Indians as human beings with a great culture of their own. And they have a great culture quite different from us. Well, I know when you made Cheyenne Autumn, you wanted to show the Indian side of the story for once. So yeah. I felt that in almost all your pictures, whenever you dealt with the Indians, there was a feeling of an understanding of their, of their lives and their, their plight. Well, let's face it. I mean, we're treating Indians very badly, haven't we? Yes, very badly. The blood in our escutcheon was cheated and robbed killed, murdered, massacred, and everything else. 
Cheyenne Autumn isn't perfect. It uses white actors to play leading native roles and uses Navajo people instead of Cheyenne. But it's far better than most other films of the era, which often use white actors in blackface speaking gibberish. Like all art, the work of both John Ford and Ken Burns reflects and impacts the environment in which it's made. Although he would rarely admit to any artistic goals, Ford's work wrestled with thorny and complex questions. I'm interested in who we are as a people, who Americans are, and I've been drawn to the way that Ford is curious about those things. And we, as I said, we diverge in a number of seminal, hugely important ways. I'm still a huge admirer, but I think a good deal of the reckonings that we're having here for all sorts of reasons, political and racial, sexual, all sorts of things, have to do with our unwillingness to see our history as it really is, our unwillingness to deal in facts, to trade in facts and not the mythology. It's permitted us, not just John Ford and D.W. Griffith, to gloss over things in Griffith's case that are reprehensible representations of race. And I think with Native peoples and Indigenous peoples in in Ford's work, and they're men of their time, and the films are, are really great, but we don't give them a pass. The choice, ultimately, to allow an inspirational past, however homogenized and however neatly tied in a bow, I firmly believe that you expose the undertow and the contradictions, stuff that Ford does too, but that you present it and you do, it doesn't neatly tie up, that the mythology gets exploded. And still there is something inspirational to be gained. And still it speaks to our incredibly vibrant present and ensures that we have a future. How does that apply today, do you think? People are fond of saying, Louise, that history repeats itself. It never has, mm -hmm. except that, as Mark Twain is supposed to have said, it rhymes. So what <laughs> we're seeing are all the rhymes. I've never made a film, and when we finish, that it isn't rhyming in the present. And that suggests that human nature doesn't change. And so if you dive deep into some moment of the past with all of its contradictions, all of its undertow, all of its majesty, all of its complexity, all of its intimacy and its grandeur, you're going to tell a story that's going to be present. As I've thought about this conversation over time, I've come back to an anecdote Peter shared about Jimmy Stewart, one of Ford's regular performers. I think it draws a striking parallel with the point Ken was just making. He said a wonderful thing to me once. We were talking about movies and what they mean and so on. And he said, not an exact quote, but close, he said, you know, the wonderful thing about movies is they give you images and things that, that you'll remember forever. Little tiny pieces of time that they never forget. Yeah, it's exactly it. You've just also written a beautiful eulogy for Ford as well. These memories, these bits of emotions, of images. We can stay away from the door shutting and the searchers or the framed of that, but just go to little tiny moments that appear all the time in all of the films that just, that stick with you. And that's, that's what it's about. That's absolutely true. Is there anything else you'd like to say about John Ford? I just think that if he hadn't come into my life in the way he did, in the intimacy of a father-son relationship, and it was not 
a really great relationship. My father was challenged in many ways and not that generous. So it felt to me the opening up of the movie world was a great gift. And this central sort of pole star of that was to be John Ford. That That's it. I don't think I'd be sitting here. I don't think I'd know you, Peter. And I count our friendship as an important thing. Without that, without having seen all of those movies, How Green Was My Valley and My Darling Clementine, Fort Apache and Rio Grande and The Grapes of Wrath and Young Mr. Lincoln and The Informer. An extraordinary body of work, isn't it? It's an extraordinary body of American work, and it's utterly American, with all the connotations, good, bad, and otherwise. And that has propelled me in a way, and so I'm grateful to him to give me something to riff off. Thanks so much, Ken. It's great to be with you. Thank you. You're a great filmmaker. Pleasure to talk to you. Next time, we're one handshake away from Howard Hawks to Greta Gerwig. Do you know where you got the idea to have all that overlapping dialogue? Here's Girl Friday, the dialogue was particularly adaptable to that. So we wrote the dialogue in a way that left the end of the sentence so you didn't need it in the beginning of a sentence, and we just kept them overlapping. Nobody had ever used that. That was, you know, its first use. I actually made the cast of Barbie watch His Girl Friday because I was like, can we get this speed and the rhythm? And also, I did the same thing with Little Women, so it's almost automatic. You're never searching for the lines, they're just there for you. One Handshake Away is narrated by me, Louise Stratton. Executive produced by Jenna Weiss Berman. Written and directed by Perry Kroll. Our story editors are Perry Kroll and Ian Mont. Produced by me, Louise Stratton and Oren Siegel. Luke Moore, John Teague, and Charlie Morgan of Stack, and Perry Kroll and Ian Mont. Edited, mixed, and mastered by Perry Kroll, Andy Jaskowitz, and Ian Mont. Production support from Sean Cherry, Barry Finkel, Raj Makaja, Javier Cruces, Richard Shelsinga, Peter Tonget, and Kelsey Hayden. Special thanks to J.D. Crowley, Maura Curran, Leah Reese Dennis, Josephina Francis, Kurt Courtney, and Hilary Schuff. One Handshake Away is an Odyssey original. It's Sophia Franklin, and if you don't already know, listen up. My mini-series is live now each and every Monday, and the only person missing is you. We're dating, we're dumping, we're learning and we're tapping into all the feels that originally brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.